Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. August 13th, New York City, caveat, you are not so smart, live. And you can watch it live streaming. You can get tickets for this, five bucks, at caveat.nyc. Yes, You Are Not So Smart is going on stage, a live taping of the You Are Not So Smart podcast with Dr. Tessa West. We're going to talk about what it means to go back to work after all of this, what psychologically happened to us when it comes to thinking about working remotely. What does that mean? Are we going to go back to work in physical environments? If we do, how does that change? And also, we're going to talk about her book, Jerks at Work, which is all about all the different types of psychological profiles that make work really tough, that make work suck more than it should. That's what we're going to talk about live, on stage, Caveat, New York City. Get your tickets. Go to Caveat's website, caveat.nyc. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 210. Our guest on this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychologist who has been on the podcast several times and someone who I consider a true friend. And she is the author of Evil and The Memory Illusion, the latter of which we haven't really gotten into on the show, not the book itself, nor the research she did that led to that book. And I wanted to bring her back on the show because we've never talked about the book. Let's talk about the book. But also last month, she had another study published. That paper was written and researched a while back and just now made it through the vetting pipeline of science. And it harkens back to her original focus as a researcher, memory. You see, Julia is famous among psychologists because she was able to implant false memories into a group of subjects and convince 70% of them that they were guilty of a crime they did not commit. And she did so by using the sort of sloppy interrogation techniques that some police departments have been truly guilty of using in the past. In other words, she showed that unbeknownst to the interviewer and the interviewee, asking a certain series of questions in a certain order is all it takes to alter a person's memory, and in some cases, that leads people to a conviction, a wrongful criminal conviction that they themselves wrongfully believe they deserve. I think you will enjoy this, and here it is. A conversation with Dr. Julia Shaw, about memory.
I'm Dr. Julia Shaw, and I'm a psychological scientist at University College London, and I write books, and I do quite a lot of science communication. Uh, yes, you do quite a lot, and uh, I recommend everyone check out your Instagram, which is always very entertaining and very well curated. Um, very sci-fi. Very sci-fi. Getting <laughs> very more book sci-fi. and sci-fi-y. It is getting more sci-fi. It's getting more Thank artsy you. and more sci-fi as, as my own brain develops. You get to watch me, and my passions <laughs> develop over time. Actually, thank you very much. You introduced me to the retro sci-fi Instagram accounts. There's like six of them, and they're my favorite thing. Every morning, I'm like, oh, what? Great. 70s and 80s sci-fi art. Uh, Like You think you you know what you're getting into if you've seen Boris Vallejo, but it goes so much weirder and so much deeper than that. I love it. Thank you very much. Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually, Uh, I'm doing a, I've, I've started creating cyanotype art, which is when you use sort of photosensitive chemicals. And then you process things outside. So you sort of layer on um, images and I'm using actually retro sci-fi covers and I'm processing them and then I'm layering them on with uh, NASA images onto Sinotype paint. And so stay tuned for some creative um, creations uh, based on that. Wow. Okay. Jeez. I will never, I will never catch up to your productivity Uh, or or your just overall weirdness, uh, especially um, so weird. <laughs> yeah, because so as science. a scientist, yes, as a sci- as a mad scientist, you've done something really strange. Let me just go right to it. In the book you write, and I'm quoting you, I'm a memory hacker. I get people to believe things that never happened. You wrote that and put it in a book and put it out into the world and it's on bookshelves and you can get it in a book called The Memory Illusion. What are you talking about and what made you want to do that kind of stuff? So what I'm talking about is actually the topic of my PhD research, which involved implanting false memories of committing crime into people who had no criminal history. And so the purpose of it was to basically investigate the intersection of false memories, so memories of things that never happened, and false confessions, so when people falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit. And I wanted to do them both at the same time, basically, and convince people of this criminal past they didn't actually have. Yeah, but why? But why? Because I think reality is something that has fascinated me for a long time. So mm-hmm. I, um, my, I've got some people in my family who are a bit have a strange relationship with reality, and so it became clear from a very young age that everyone's reality is different, and some people's reality is dramatically different um, with things like mental health issues and things like that. So they're literally seeing and hearing things that you don't. Paranoid delusions and um, schizophrenia and those kinds of things. You, you just realize when someone is talking that they are perceiving a very different reality. Now, on a less mental health-ish sort of level, we also find that every individual just has their own reality. And that to me is fascinating. And it ties in with memory and it ties in with identity because I think our identity is based on who we think we have been in the past. Mm. And that is your memory, especially your autobiographical memory. And so being able to hack it or change it showcases this possibility of distorting reality on a very fundamental level. Yeah. uh, I remember in Total Recall, uh, just to go ahead and get really lay person on you. I remember there's a line in Total Recall, which Total Recall is all about implanting memories because it's, you know, it comes from a Philip K. Dick, kind of comes from a Philip K. Dick story. Uh, Since you're a science sci-fi nerd, uh, I'm trying to ingratiate myself to your graces. The, the, there, you know, there's a line there, like um, uh, somebody tells the main character, Arnold Schwarzenegger, that he's, uh, it doesn't matter if he doesn't have any of his old memories. That's not who he is as a person. Uh, you, you are not your memories. What would you say to that sort of statement, Julia Shaw? 
Well, you are your memories. And in fact, in Total Recall, that's the whole point is that you're changing memories and that's changing who the person thinks they are and how they're dealing with reality. So, I mean, that that's there's a number of movies that deal with this, including Blade Runner, where it's mm -hmm. a question of sort of can you copy memories? Can you implant memories and give people a perceived childhood maybe that wasn't quite the way that they remember it or didn't happen at all, potentially? Yeah. If we're talking about, you know, robots, you know, can you give a robot a history by just giving them fake memories? And if so, what should those memories look like? What makes them feel real? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a fundamental question as well, is that it's one thing to get people to believe untruths or believe sort of fake news, if you will, sort of mm -hmm. facts, individual pieces of information that are factually inaccurate. That is incredibly easy, um, which we all have so many misconceptions. And so, I mean, you write about this all the time. Yeah. Uh, we are, in fact, not as smart as we think we are. <laughs> and we are getting things wrong all the time. And, but, but more than that is when it's multisensory, when you, know, you can feel things and touch things. And this memory you think you have has multiple dimensions. And that's also what um, Blade Runner goes into, sort of what does it take to yeah. make that feeling um and so there they have sort of the memory maker who creates these these false false memories I love it so much i love that movie i had movie pass when that came out do you remember i don't know do you ever have movie pass there the movie pass was this like uh for ten dollars a month you could watch as many movies as you wanted you just just like came in with a little card it it failed immediately but i had it when it was still going and i, I remember when, it, when blade runner 2049 came out i saw the movie three times in the theater uh, with that movie pass, and that was the best use of that thing. And yes, I very much remember the the, the memory creator and the whole premise of uh, he had formed a mission in life by assuming he was this person in childhood that turned out to not to be true at all. And so the whole question of that movie is similar to Total Recall, which is a whole Philip K. Dick thing, which is your thing, which is what is um, real. <laughs> what is real, and who am I? <laughs> what is real? Who am I? My core personality interacts with if we you know there's a there's a, a a model of human cognition that assumes that personality is one thing and memory is another and they interact to create our being and if you take away the memory then that that personality will still interact with something and so those movies sort of play with that i know blade runner plays with that a lot like his core personality was a good human being in some form or another a heroic character who so it didn't matter in the end if it was true or not uh what do you think about that I mean, this is a question that also comes up with Alzheimer's patients is, or people with severe dementia as it sort of progresses. And so you see memories fading and people will say, you know, my, my parent is no longer the person they used to be. Mm. And, you know, we, we hear that picked up quite a lot in lay language when we talk about sort of losing our autobiographical memories. And I think that it is probably more fundamental, the connection between memory and personality than we might like. And mm. that shifting our memories does have a more profound influence on in our personality than we assume. Oh, and on top of that, I didn't want you to say. <laughs> see, we don't like it. Um, and I also think that this ties in with another misconception we have, which is that we assume that personality is stable. And that's partly something that psychologists themselves, I think, believe, or many have mm -hmm. believed, because there have been um, there has been research on this. There's been you know a shift over time in assuming that personality is stable, and then now assuming it's a bit more dynamic again. Um, but I think personality in general, we assume we're always going to be the person we are today, that we are right now, yeah. and that just isn't the case. Even though we and weren't that person ten years ago. Exactly, but it, even that, it's impossible to look back at ten years ago and see it without looking through the lens of today. And so even there, you're probably adjusting and adapting your story mm. of 10 years ago to fit your narrative today. 
And that in and of itself is potentially creating a fictional or false uh, memory narrative in your own life. So you, you can there give yourself go. false memories quite easily. You say in the book, you work on um, a lot of unpleasant stuff in your research, murder, abuse, sexual assault. Uh, in addition to the memory research, what makes this such a fascination for you? What makes evil and bad behavior a fascination, you mean? Well, like, like why is this something that you didn't have to talk to, to do research into things that make other people uncomfortable, uh, and you didn't have to take such a subversive stance on it once you got in there? What compelled you to reach into those domains of the human experience? I think the things that are the hardest to talk about are usually the most important and the most interesting. And I think that that draws me towards taboo topics almost universally. Mm. Um, also, the fact that we are sensitive about them. I mean, basically, it just signifies their importance. Mm. And, and that, to me, means you need to keep pushing. And whether that's about memory or about evil, bad behavior, about, you know, why people are still going out while, you know, Corona's happening and potentially infecting other people, whether it's um, about sexuality, whether it's about, um, you know, to me, again, it's all these taboo issues that tie in with our identity and that we often don't have actually very good conversations about, even though they affect us every day of our lives. And so I want to have that conversation in a structured and evidence-based way, which is Mm -hmm. why I write about the things I do. Plus... It's a good way to keep the existential dread at bay is to, to think <laughs> about the, the darkest things. And it also contextualizes your current situation and makes it feel oh, wow. great. Usually you must be making it just fine right now. Then uh, <laughs> you're like, Oh, if only I could have lived through the plague. And then you're like, mm, here's a nice gift for you. Uh, <laughs> well, and I mean, you could argue that the, so this is something I very much think when I do my, my new sort of Avenue of, looking more into bisexuality, looking more into sort of invisible sexualities. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, that is very much um, because I am a, in a position of privilege, because I am safe, because I, you know, I'm in a country where it's not illegal to engage in homosexual behavior, for example, mm-hmm. I can do that. And I can have that conversation and write about it and help other people who aren't able to have that kind of voice. So I do also very much acknowledge the privilege that I have. And I think maybe, you know, if it was really awful and we had the plague and, um, you know, it was even worse than it is now with Corona, uh, I might not have the capacity to do this. And so I should grab this relative stability and run with it and do what I can and create what I can. Let's get into your your memory research. I love this thing in the book. It's deep in the book. You would think it would be at the beginning, but you you save it for later. And uh, you say there's this whole thing about on your first day getting you know your education in memory research. Your university professor took out a piece of paper and did this really bizarre thing. If you could tell that story to us, I would love to hear it and then sort of like explain why that was done and what you learned from it. Um, Well, I mean, this is one of my favorite professors who, um, his name is uh, Barry Beierstein, actually. He was also a skeptic, and he died quite a few years ago, unfortunately. But he was just a fabulous professor in general. And I'll never forget that he also, at one point, said that he was a neuron. And he, like, just stood in the middle of the lecture theater and was like, I am a neuron. (laughs) Here are my dendrites. And, like, was, like, sticking out, like, body parts to represent different parts of uh, the neuron, which I thought was really uh, fun. Um, And then another thing he did was he took a piece of paper and he folded it in half. And he kept folding it, basically. And the idea was that it starts with this is reality. So the whole piece of paper unfolded is what's actually happening, sort of, in the physical world. You fold it in half and this is what you are perceiving. Now you fold that in half, and so now you're at a quarter of a page, right? And this is what you're paying attention to. And you fold that in half, and this is what you... And you just kept folding it. And by the end, you had this tiny little rectangle, which represented what you actually remember in the future. 
And so it was just taking it, moving it increasingly from reality through perceptual filters, through memory filters, through the brain into recollection. And you're, you end up with this tiny, tiny, tiny piece of reality. I love this so much. I love this so much. You, and to reiterate it, yeah, the, the full thing is reality. Then he folds it in half. That's what you can perceive or what you do perceive. Fold it in half again. That's what you pay attention to of the things you perceive. Fold it again. I'm reading right from your book right now. You fold it. You fold it again, and um, that's what the brain makes into engrams. And you could explain what that is after I finish this. And then, after all that, he folds it one more time, and now it's you know a pretty small piece of paper. And that's what you can recall among the engrams, among the things you paid attention to, among the things you could perceive, among all of reality. What's an engram? An engram is a memory. So just a it's, memory. Just it's, a word for memory. Okay. Basically, so, just a memory. So memory in the brain. So physical piece of a memory. So of all and of all the things we're experiencing as a human being, I like there is a misconception and you bring it up a lot of times in the book and it comes up in other research. Like a lot of people, when you ask them, when you poll them, if they have no experience with this, they we have an intuition that the brain takes in reality like a video camera and then it stores it. Uh, that's sort of what we assume it does. It's a it's a video camera that records to a hard drive. Do you know why we assume that? Why do we assume that? We assume that because a psychologist told us to assume that. What? <laughs> tell me, tell, tell us more, tell us that, and then also tell us what really is going on. Oh, it was, it was just a, basically a psychologist was looking at research on memory and assumed that there must be a mechanism that is physically recording, like, a, like we would now think of a video camera, um, or like we did, used to think, I guess, a video camera was physically recording things um, and keeping it sort of safe and separate. And uh, then that was overthrown. But sort of early con conceptualizations of memory actually had this built in. Um, and so this, this was has been changed now, but it was in fact a psychologist who told us to think that it was, it didn't just come from sort of lay understanding. It okay. was taught. <laughs> um, it a lot of things that we now realize are misconceptions are taught, but that's science. It's self-correcting no, right. <laughs> and we're constantly trying to get close to the truth, right? And yeah, science is self-correcting, but not as, the public knowledge is not necessarily self-correcting. Correct. Uh, and, that, and that's where we get into the trouble like this, but it also does feel that way. Like I don't, until you'll, you know, that, that, that paper, uh, analogy metaphor example i love it it's really cool but i do think that like for the most part people intuitively feel like they do take in everything if, if your eyes can see it and your ears can hear it then you take it all in and you remember it and if you have a memory it's just that thing that happened it's a fully recorded thing that's stored inside your head and you can take it back out again and look at it and every time you look at it it's the exact memory that was there there every time what's act what's the what do we know so far about whether or not any of that is true Oh man, this could be, we could have a whole lecture series on this, but let's start, let's do a couple of basics. So one of the basics is that you are barely perceiving the world around you. I mean, even just think about your field of vision, Never mind. like think if you're colorblind, I mean, that's sort of an obvious one. Like you're literally not seeing those colors. Um, your field of vision is narrow. You cannot see most things at most times. And that's the best you're ever going to have. And I think the best way you can test your sort of immediate perceptual recall is to wherever you're sitting right now, close your eyes and try to describe exactly what you just saw. I mean, you saw it, you know, mm. two seconds ago yeah. and you are almost certainly already have an incomplete picture of what no. you just it's a, saw. And it's even worse. It's a plant. So it's like, it's a giant like corn plant. So like, like if I was to try to draw it from memory, it's impossible. It's a very complicated psychedelic idea that uh, no, no. So yeah, I'm like, I even trying to do, what's this called? Eidetic memory. Like, so I'm like, 
yeah, yeah, no, photographic, it's not, exactly. It's not, it's not gonna, yeah, it's not and actually, eidetic memory or photographic memory um, only seems to exist in some children, and it's actually a sign of developmental delay. So, what this teaches us is that um, photographic memory a has been totally blown out of proportion. It's not actually something that adults really seem to have at all. The closest we get is sort of really, really good memory, but even that's never perfect. And it's usually what it means is that you can't generalize. Now the brain is built for abstraction. And so what it's supposed to do and what your brain is doing when you close your eyes and you try to picture what you just saw is it's giving you a general representation. It's not giving you precision. It's giving you sort of a gist of what you saw. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to immediately abstract and distill sort of the important things. So like if there was a threat in your environment, you'd probably remember there was a threat in your environment. Or, you know, mm. if there's something really positive, let's say my cat walks in, I remember my cat, but I might not remember the rest of the room very well. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's supposed to do. And so when it doesn't do that, it's actually a sign of a problem. And it means that you're probably also not particularly intelligent. Um, <laughs> so for kids, if people tell me all bragging, oh, my kid has photographic memory, I usually go, Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and they go, what do you mean? And I'm like, you probably shouldn't be bragging about that because A, it's probably not true. But if it is, it's actually a bad side. If you, so all these characters like Sherlock type characters in our fiction, that's actually an indication that there's something wrong with them developmentally, that they would have photographic memory or are as close to it as you can get. Well, so that's, if we're talking about actual photographic memory, as in you close your eyes and you see exactly what you just saw, which also is usually a short period of time. So even for people who have it, even for children who have it, it's, you know, it goes away quite quickly. It still fades. With Sherlock Holmes type characters or highly superior autobiographical memory, so they're called H stands, mm, yeah, highly I superior autobiographical memory individuals. Um, there aren't very many of them. You're probably not one. Everyone immediately goes, oh, this might be me. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> you are probably not this kind of person. There are very few people uh, who are like this. And they have generally sort of close to autism, they have sort of islands of genius. And so mm. they'll be amazing at remembering one particular aspect of their lives. So that could be something like the weather, facts for historical events, or, you know, stories that people tell them. And, but it's usually only one of those things. And even they, we've shown in studies, are still prone to false memories if you try to give them to Okay, I had that written down as a note. That, that blows my mind. So... A, if I'm hearing you correctly, just correct me, please, uh, if I'm getting this wrong. With the photographic memory, especially the kind we think of in, in fictional characters, isn't really a thing. We haven't really seen that. Uh, the only examples we have of it are people who are really, really young, and even then it's uh, associated with some sort of developmental issue. And even those people who are as close to this as we can get, and I think in the book you say there's like fewer than 100 that we've found, even those people are you can pretty easily give them false memories. You can pretty easily, pretty easily manipulate those people's memories, even though norm they, they would think that they have perfect memory. You can take that and mess with it very easily, just like anyone else. That's right. So they basically their foundation is much higher than ours in terms of remembering something in a specific category. So, and then people probably listening to this are thinking, ah, but I've seen those videos of someone in a helicopter flying over a city and drawing the entire skyline. I've seen that, now, yeah. This person's particular island of genius, if you will, or memory island, uh, sort of the thing that they're particularly good at remembering might specifically be, you know, building structures or some visual outlines. Um, but if you ask them to remember facts, they're probably just as bad or worse than the average person. That makes sense. Um, and and even for those skylines, you can probably implant a few 
you know, buildings that weren't actually there. That's exactly as well as I was gonna say. And you could like, and and if you took that skyline and put it next, to, it's not it's not exactly one to one either. It, it's just incredibly close compared to what any normal yeah. person can do. Because any we are so poor at it, it looks at a first glance like, wow, this person's. Uh, so. That's right. Um, it looks perfect because ours is so imperfect that we can't even tell that it's imperfect. That's that's the secret. That's the that's the secret to success. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Be slightly less imperfect than others. <laughs> that's my whole bag. Uh, I love this quote from your book. Uh, and we this is sort of a summary of everything we just said. But our but if you've never heard this, and I remember like a decade ago when I was mentioning the work of Elizabeth Loftus in lectures and stuff, this was always like a, a, a moment for most people. Our past is a, this is your, these are your words. Our past is a fictional representation. And the only thing we can even somewhat be sure of is what is happening now. It encourages us to live in the moment and not to place too much importance on our past. It forces us to accept that the best time of our lives and our memory is right now. You still believe that? I do. I also think it's a really freeing thought. So I think that there are a lot of people who sort of live in the past and live in their memories. And I think that realizing that every single day you wake up uh, with a slightly different brain and slightly different memories and that you're constantly reinventing the memories and changing them and distorting them and that other people's memories are contaminating your memories. I think that means that you can kind of let go and kind of say, okay, maybe these memories, I'm just going to accept that they're not perfect. And let's just focus if we can as much as possible on the now. Um, but that's also me being biased because part of the reason I study false memories is because my memory is quite bad, especially for autobiographical things. And my memory is quite bad for autobiographical things because I don't place that much value in autobiographical memories. <laughs> I place much more value on present and future thinking, which is why I like science fiction. So, I mean, that's mm. also, a, so this is where we come back to things like perception and so if you don't value memories and sort of uh, shared experiences in the same way as other people, and maybe you're in your head, you're, you're conceptual, you're constantly thinking about stuff that's not actually related to the moment, and you're thinking about, you know, what you're going to do next or what you're going to research next. Oh, my God, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's corona times. Everything is, everything is acceptable and permissible now. You're in, a, you're, in a, you're in a pillow for it. It's fine. I'm in a, it's a blanket for it, actually. It's a blanket for it. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a blanket for it. Um, but yeah, so, sorry, where was I going with Where that? were you no. going? Do you remember where you were, <laughs> Julia Shaw? I was going towards the future. I can tell you future. anything right now. I can tell you anything right now, and you might believe it. You were just telling me about how when you were a kid, uh, you were bitten by a snake. And, uh... <laughs> nice try. <laughs> um, friends don't give friends false memories. <laughs> this is a motto I live by. Um, but yeah, so if you're, if you're generally paying more attention to your own thoughts, let's say, rather than the details of what's happening around you, that's what you're also going to be more likely to remember. So I think that I've spoken with lots of, especially introverts, and I find that quite often introverts are more likely to not remember the details of specific situations, but they'll remember what they thought about it. Mm, like that so triggered cool. me to think about this or to do that, which isn't in and of itself a memory. It's just not of the same things that other people have memories of. Oh man. That's going to make me read people differently. Like when I read different journalists or authors and, and, and the way they will retell something they experienced, it's going to make me think differently about how they do that. Cause some people are get very detail oriented about the scene and how other people looked um, and some people are much more likely to talk about how they felt, uh, or how other people made them feel or how much they empathized with the other person. And I can see why there would be different details drawn out because different people, you know, have different, uh, settings when it comes to what they're laying down in, in, in grams. 
Yeah. Or they're seeing the political aspect of the situation or they're seeing, you know, whatever. And this is where also your own special knowledge comes in and your own worldview, because you, you as an individual carry with you your knowledge base and that's going to be mm. different from anyone else. And so just like, you know, an expert chess player will see, you know, a sequence of 20 moves and go, oh, well, that's obviously, you know, such and such opening. Mm. And for them, that's one memory, one label for you. You're trying to remember each and every move. And so it's much more complex and it takes a lot more work. And so that's where expertise also heavily taints how we perceive the world around us and how we remember it. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, Time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. So you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source 
of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm sure you're aware of this since you're a memory expert, but I did a show a while back about practice. And one of the things that came out of that was the, that chess champions aren't really, aren't, aren't especially cognitively t more talented than other people. It's just they have memorized so many chess positions that for them, it's, it's, it's just a memorization. It's just practice. It's just seeing the pattern before you do, which I think is pretty much what you just said. But it blows my mind that it's a, it's a memory game more than it is a strategy game at a certain level. I mean, you still have to be good at strategy, but it's having that giant bank of memory. This is basically an argument for top-down versus bottom-up. Let me just throw that as a softball to you, and you can talk about what's the difference between top-down and bottom-up processing, and how does memory play into that? Um, I mean, first of all, in terms of the chess metaphor, um, I think that, I mean, basically what you're talking about is expertise in general, right? So I mean, yeah. someone who has a lot of memories and a lot of knowledge, so like factual knowledge, um, that is going to usually be someone who's an expert who's committed a lot of time to learning about a specific area. And um, then comes the flexibility of how to use it. Mm. And in some ways, that's how we define intelligence, is the ability to use these things that you know, this, this stuff that you have in your memory banks, and to creatively recombine it, which actually leads us directly into false memories. So I'm going to yes. skip over the top-down, bottom-up processing okay, and right into false it. memories. I will say one more thing, and this will be sort of how I introduce our uh, your, your studies here. You just straight up, and I think we haven't actually explicitly said this yet, but I guess people have inferred it, you say in the book that any event, no matter how important, emotional, or traumatic it may seem, can be forgotten, misremembered, or even be entirely fictitious. So 
just that by itself is is sort of a revelation that anything that we may consider an important memory of our from our past, something that defines us as a human being, that defines how we feel about other people in our lives, could be could be fictional, or it could be so altered by the present or by our motivations, it could simply just be not quite the perfect one-to-one representation of what we experience. So that in itself is is bonkers, but and it requires some existential rumination to to incorporate it into your personhood. But the other thing you say right after that, the very next sentence is, <laughs> I have convinced people they have committed crimes that never occurred, suffered from a physical injury they never had, or were attacked by a dog when no such attack ever took place. Due to our psychological and physiological configuration, all of us can come to confidently and vividly remember entire events that never actually took place. So... With that giant statement said, uh, you have there are two studies I want to talk about. One, like I said earlier, just always blows people's minds, and I guess we'll just go right into it. The you wrote a whole book about this, and you have this paper that describes how you actually did this. You were able to make people, you were able to convince people that they had committed a crime, and you're able to convince a lot of people of this, a large percentage of the people you attempted it on. Talk about this at length in any way, way you want, but somewhere in there, help us, uh, take me through the process of how you do that. So I wanted to look at the intersection of false memories and false confessions, and I wanted to specifically add what we would consider agency into the mix. And mm. so if you're an eyewitness, you're just watching, you're observing someone else do something bad. And that doesn't actually make you challenge your identity or your own sort of personal narrative. Whereas if you're the one who you think did something bad, that brings a lot more things into question. And mm. for me, that's a much more interesting aspect of it. The sort of, what if I convince you that you committed a crime or did something negative emotional? And so that's what I wanted to do. And it's not um, a party trick. It's not just something that you do for fun. It's specifically because it has profound implications for the criminal justice system yeah. and for how we understand and appraise things like confessions and also just retellings of doing bad things, including criminal activity. Mm. So in my research, I had participants come in and I'd previously contacted their parents about information about their lives. So these were university students and um, they came in thinking, knowing, if you will, that this is a study about emotional events in early adolescence. And they uh, knew I'd contacted their trusted persons and that I had insider information about their lives. This is important. Because what this means is that they knew I knew stuff about their childhood, which in no other way I could have found out, right? So without talking to someone they knew and who knew them, I wouldn't have the sort of insider information. And that's what I used to craft these false memories. And what I did is I had people, I told people first to remember an event that I knew actually happened. So when you were 14 years old, you had an incident where you had you injured yourself for example when you were let's say a skiing accident this happened in Canada so there's quite a lot of snow related things mm-hmm. um, and then you would tell me about this so you'd be in this study you don't know it's a false memory study you're just telling me about this memory you know actually happened then as the second one I say the second incident which your parents reported happening was an incident where you were in contact with the police it was an incident where you assaulted someone you know, can, do you remember anything about it? And they'd say, no, and I'd say, okay. And then I'd give them the details and it would be, I would sort of 
patchwork together the details that I knew about their life into a very, very basic framework. So I would say it happens in the place where they grew up. So I'd insert that mm. with the name of their best friend at the time. Mm. It was fall. It's always fall in my memories. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a very emotive time. <laughs> um, you could picture it. There's leaves. It's always fall in my memories. It's always fall. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, and it, it happened in your local park, for example. And then they would craft the rest. And so the idea is that all I'd give them was the incident, which was that you assaulted someone or you assaulted someone with a weapon or you stole something. So depending on the participant, I would alternate which crime they committed or if they, or if they did something else that was emotional, mm. like being attacked by an animal or other emotional events. And then I'd let them figure it out. And so I'd have them close their eyes. I'd have them picture the event happening as it could have been. And over the course of three interviews, I would repeatedly have them imagining this incident as it could have been, and the details would start to come. And as soon as a detail came, like blue sky was my first detail, which feels like nothing. But when you've got someone sitting in front of you with their eyes closed, doing an imagination exercise or something that you know didn't happen, but they say, I can clearly see a blue sky, what it means is that they've bought into the idea that they're accessing a memory and they're not creating one. Mm -hmm. And that's really crucial. And so then what you do is you reward every single piece that comes. A little social, social candy. Like, yes, very good. Looks like it's coming back. <laughs> People love praise. Your math so, just comes out so hard on this, which is what I, I'm enjoying right now. But, uh, <laughs> so to, you're, you're, you sit them down just, just for the audience's sake. You, you, bring, you bring these people in. Uh, you also made sure that you sorted people in a certain way. So you got just the right kind of participant. Somebody who didn't actually have an actual... Uh, interaction with the police or something. Um, right. So, so you make sure from 200 participants down to 60. So then you take, um, took part. so then you, you bring them in and you, and you, you already have details from their, from their parents. Uh, so you know, the names of their friends, you know, where they grew up, you know, all sorts of details and you're able to create this, tell them this thing happened to them, but you seed it with details that they know are true about their lives. And they're trying their best to like visualize it. And that's a part, a big part of this. You have them visualize it and then you sort of set them free to go home and think about it. And then you bring them right. back and do it again and you set them free. And then there's a, th a third time. And then, so that's where we're at. You've brought them in for a third uh, visualization. What happens next? Correct. And there's a week between each interview. So that okay. it sort of has some time to set, if you will. And the homework is to sort of think about it and see if they can recall more details without talking to anyone about it. And so I have them sign a non-disclosure agreement, um, which of course is a fake non-disclosure agreement, but they don't know that. And I mean, I'm lying. The whole thing is lies. Sure, so yeah, sure, sure. Um, of course it had ethical approval. There was an extensive ethical protocol <laughs> just to get that out of the way, um, just to make that clear. It was uh, very... Much on top of my <laughs> to mind. Make to this make clear. Sure. This is very ethical. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's very ethical, but it certainly was. Uh, we had a lot of ethical considerations in mind good. and made sure that we adhered to them. Good. Um, good, good. So uh, whether we can we can debate whether it was ethical or not. Mm. Uh, it's a, that's a separate separate debate. Um, but the importance here is that they came back after the so the third time they're back, and at this point, seventy percent of the participants were telling me about this event that never happened. 70%. 70% were falsely confessing to this crime, and they said that they remembered it. And so in the sort of after they told me the whole account as well, I asked them things like, you know, did you think this actually happened? Can you feel things in the memory? Can you see things in the memory? Can you smell things in the memory? So this is tapping into the multi-sensory complexity of it. 
And so 70% of the participants uh, said, said yes to these things. And uh, the reason it worked is because, yeah, it had this, these real pieces put together in a way that didn't actually happen, but made sense to the participants themselves. So I couldn't have created a full story and just said, here, believe this. But I can give you pieces that you make fit into your That's story. It. And that you build out with your emotions and your multisensory pieces if I just get you to picture wow. what it felt like and tasted like and smelled like. That's, that's where the realism comes from. That's wow. that's where the memory hacking comes in. Memory hacking. The yeah, yeah. All, I uh, all all of my personal research into persuasion for the project I've been working on for a long time. It always comes down to that. Like the the most persuasive persuasive techniques are the ones that encourage the other person to meet you more than halfway. They do they do almost all the work. Uh, they don't feel like they're being copy pasted something from you into them. And this memory hacking is, a, is it has that same quality of like, um, yeah. I mean, you just gave them a couple of um, prods and pokes and, and encouragement here and there, and they totally did all the work for you, which is how it makes us what well, that's what makes it real. So uh, it makes it real, and that's also what what happens in real life. And so this is where the parallel draws. There's a bunch of parallels. One is to therapy. So if you have someone who's digging around in your memories. And um, specifically in psychoanalytic therapy, there is a, a sort of aspect of that that can tend towards assuming that there must be repressed memories in your brain mm. that, are, that have caused some sort of anxiety or that have caused other mental health issues as an adult. That in and of itself is not an evidence-based uh, assumption. So it's not, it's not evidence-based to say that you have these hidden memories that you have no idea you have that are mm. causing the problems that you have as an adult. Um, of course, childhood is important, but there's, there's not the sort of secret lock that only a therapist can unlock to these hidden, horrible memories of your childhood. Um, and so mm. the problem is that they use things like visualization techniques. And so the context reinstatement that I used is also used in therapy. And so it shows that you need to be incredibly careful when someone is saying, don't you remember this? And is sort of guiding you and letting you build out your imagination that you don't come out potentially with a memory of a traumatic event that never happened. Wow. You can come out basically of this kind of therapy with PTSD for an event that you didn't actually experience, wow. which is really quite dark, but also a really big and important warning sign, which is one of the reasons I did the research. Never mind, you know, bad police interrogation techniques and leading and suggested questions, which is the other classic application of my research. Well, yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, uh, I, there have there have been people, I mean, it's like, first of all, it's very difficult to accept on the face that... I could be convinced that I committed a, a crime that I didn't commit, that I could believe it, that believe it so much that I would defend my own memory to someone who then challenged it, um, which all of this happens. Uh, this is, you've seen this in the literature. This is in the book. This is in your work. You've done it yourself. It's um, in cases. I mean, we see it in, in the wild as well. We see, you know, we see false confessions. We see people believe their false confessions. And then it turns out it's, you know, somebody else's DNA at the scene. I mean, there's so many levels of this at this point that like, we just know this is true. And there doesn't seem to be a brain that is completely immune to this either. And for one of the things that twists me, the, one of the things that, that uh, darkly excites me, which that should please you, that uh, <laughs> is, that, is that there's, okay, everyone involved in that, um, we're all living in a level way above the line under which we can't introspect any further. You know, we can't, we can't see the antecedents to all these thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, not the person being interrogated, not the people interrogating them. So, nor at the next level, other people involved in the criminal justice system. So everyone is living in a dreamscape that doesn't exist. You've got the investigators, 
believe that's a true confession. The person doing the confession believes that it's a true confession. The judges, the jury, everyone involved in this is living a complete myth, a fiction, a fantasy, a dream that never occurred, yet everyone involved in it has deep confidence, including the person who thinks they committed the crime that did not happen. Everyone is, is living in a, in a fairy tale that it was conjured up just through normal, not abnormal, not um, something that involves a lesion on the brain. This is absolutely the normal everyday functioning of human brains interacting with one another. Does that freak you out? It freaks me out. There's a next level to the weirdness of this, which is that it's not just not abnormal. So it's not just pathological that this happens. And just to qualify that quickly, um, (laughs) there are brains where this happens a lot more. So again, with Alzheimer's or dementia, you can see people filling in the blanks and what's called confabulating all the time. They're just making stuff up to fill in because they don't remember how things fit together. And so their brains just start randomly creating uh, threads to connect it. But barring that, um, these kinds of false memories are the sign of a healthy brain. They are in fact what your brain is built for. Like this is not just not abnormal, it is healthy. So creating false memories that your that your brain does this is com- specifically what it's built for. It's built to creatively recombine information. Okay, before we go into the next level of your research, why would that be useful to our organism? Oh, it's in, it's way more useful to remember in general what th- what things happened in the past. So I mean in general to take out like the core things that it's almost like when you when you're going through a textbook and you're like highlighting things like you don't actually need to remember every single word what you want is you want to remember the concepts and then once you have that high level you can put those concepts together in a much easier way whereas if you get bogged down with all the little details that might actually sort of fill up your time frankly with stuff that isn't actually useful to you to survive or otherwise now with these concepts so you have these little nuggets that your brain has said okay this is important enough that i'm going to hold on to this now what you can do is you can play with them and you mm-hmm. can come up with creative new ideas and creative new solutions to survive in the world that you're experiencing right now. Do you see a new problem? There's a new threat or there's a new situation. You take all these things. You've never been in this situation before. And yet you use the things that you had before, these concepts, these nuggets, and you apply them to the now. And that's what false memories are basically as well, is that they're just com- combining things. These networks are being creative because that's what your brain does. A that's, false that's memory. Intelligence. That's, that's what I, thinking. I, I get you, and I, I'm like, and I'm thrilled by it the same way you are. And that it's more useful to live. I mean, all of reality is virtual, so like it's more useful to live in these these sort of sharpened, embellished, diminished, whatever you need to do to make it more useful. I can see that, but it it also blows my mind that like that works fine until we create something like the criminal justice system, which is an artifice. You know, it's 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 it's, it's an artificial manifestation. It's a cultural object that simply was created without this knowledge uh, of how the brain works. And so I don't, it, I don't know that's true. I'm going to challenge you there. I okay, think that do, please. <laughs> um, it's not, we sure we didn't have the neuroscientific insights into how memories are created or stored or changed, but we have for a long time realized that, you know, memories, including of crimes are incredibly malleable and that witness memory, for example, is uh, potentially unreliable at times that, you know, there's things like co-witness effects that people talking to each other can be a problem. And I mean, if my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is from Aristotle who said that um, memories of emotional events are like stamped on running water. Like they're basically gone immediately. And I, this, this challenges that idea that we actually had much later, which is a Freudian concept of 
the traumatic memories that are sort of burned into your brain and never go away, that sort of idea of trauma actually came much later. So in some ways, that is a sort of from 100 years ago. Mm. And for a long time, we've sort of gone up and down with sort of how much we think our memories are stable. And uh, I I mean, if you talk to any judge or any lawyer, they're they're well aware that memories kind of suck, but they work with what they've got. And often memories is all you have. But based off this research you've done, like, how would you recommend reforming or changing or altering or, or, you know, turning the knobs of what we currently do in the criminal justice system? You actually, before I ask, before I finish that question, you you mentioned, I have it written down so that I would recall, there, oh, there's a, you were talking about there's implications for therapy, but also for interrogation, investigation, and something called critical incident stress debriefing. So to play off what you were just saying, there are tweaks that we could make to this system based off what you've learned. What would those be? Certainly. So I, one of the main things is, well, depending on which aspect you're talking about, but one of the main things for the criminal justice. Yeah, system, criminal justice first, for sure. Yeah. Let's start with that, is that we, for one, um, record all interviews with suspects and with eyewitnesses from the first time we interact with someone, and that we advise from the moment we can, as in the moment a, a police officer, for example, comes to a scene, that people don't talk to each other. Because that, at the very least, minimizes what's called contamination, which means that you're not picking up what other people are saying and mixing it in with your memory. Um, now, those people, those things that other people are saying might be accurate, but they also might not. And the problem is that you're just you you just don't know what the sort of virgin original memory was once it's been contaminated. And so, what you want to do, and what I do as an expert witness, is I go through and I look at how a memory was recalled as from as early on as possible. And so if you, go, if you go on the other side, what you want to be doing if you're an eyewitness or you're accused of a crime or even you experience something like harassment or discrimination at work mm. is you want to make a contemporaneous record of what happened and you want to send it to yourself so it's timestamped. So you want to be able to show this is what I remember at the time because that is likely to change in some ways. But you can then point at it and say, no, no, but I recorded this at the time. And so that's the original memory because that is just so much more useful. So that's one thing we should all be doing as much as possible. And, and to interrupt you just for a moment, that's a good interruption. You you created a um, a uh, a program, an app, an application, a a a piece of technology that can be used in workplaces to um, record harassment and to aid in the in all the things you were talking about. How, how does it how does it use those principles? That's right. So a couple of years, I got interested in the intersection of artificial intelligence and Uh, memory and how we can outsource remembering and basically write down more critical information in an evidence-based way. Because if you see something, let's say harassment at work, for example, then you probably, hopefully, haven't been in a situation that you're a witness very often, so that you don't necessarily also know what is important information to record. And so how do we have sort of the perfect memory interviewer in people's pockets so that when something happens, they can pull up this app and it walks them through in a chatbot format the questions that they need to answer, and then it timestamps it as a PDF report immediately. Mm-hmm. So they have the highest quality evidence that they can. And so a couple of years ago, I co-founded uh, Spot, so talktospot.com, which is a free chatbot that helps you record and report harassment and discrimination at work. But ultimately, I think that it could be seen as a bit of a template for um, evidence-based interviewing in a scalable way that doesn't require memory scientists to be there all the time yeah. because we're just not going to be. And, and we come with our own stereotypes and biases and assumptions yeah. and the social dynamics. And so 
with a bot, in some ways, it gets around some of the stereotypes that we ourselves might introduce to a situation or the reluctance of a witness to tell certain parts of the story. So I think for me, this is the future of interviewing, but I would say that because that's why I created a chatbot <laughs> to do this. The, but also for me, like looking at it, from, uh, I was thinking like this, this has applications in a number of places where you need an expert to do certain things. Like uh, it doesn't just have to necessarily be for memory research. There's a way to apply the bot system. And that would be, no, that excites me as well. So um, what are some other tweaks? We got off of course there for a second. Other, other tweaks in other, in other institutions you think that this research could apply to? Um, I mean, another, so how do we improve memory processes? W one other setting, which is, I mean, again, criminal uh, or related justice, uh, the International Criminal Court. Um, and okay. so how do we sort of deal with war criminals? How do we deal with um, cultural and social memories? So when you have a whole society remembering atrocity that was committed, um, that is, I think, a fascinating aspect of remembering <sighs> And how we tease out or try to tease out the, what happened without the political or, or removing some of the political bias that can come in afterwards as well. Yeah. Right. So, you know, afterwards that it was an atrocity, but trying to access and get back to those original memories that you had at the time with that you were perceiving it. That's almost an impossible task. And yet we have to do it, unfortunately, you know, from time to time when these things happen. And so, again, you know, trying to deal with, um, in German, there's a great word for this, Zeitzeugen, time witnesses. So what is it? Who are live, Zeitzeugen. Zeitzeugen. Which, which literally translates to time witness, which mm. sounds a bit like the title of a sci-fi novel. Um, 1970s. And it's <laughs> basically saying that people who are alive at the time and their stories, and I mean, any person who writes autobiographies or just biographies in general will be able to tell you that, you know, these things are going to change um, and yet we want to access them so again they're trying to record at the time how you feel same with during corona i mean if you're yeah. you know trying to preserve your memory accurately of what you're thinking and feeling and doing right now you want to be writing that things those things down right now because depending on how this all unfolds it's going to change how you remember now i want to ask you one question about this while it's on my mind uh, i've had a number of people realize they're laying down dense Episodic, or they're 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 experiencing time dilation in a way. In a way, at least, is what it feels like. That in the beginning, when this was new, when it was uh, what's going to happen, I've never had to do this before. It felt like time slowed down, and the so the month of March felt like it lasted a year, and then now it feels like we've hurtled through April, and it feels like my memory of March is thick and dense and full of stuff. And my memory of April feels like just one thing continuously smeared across my memory landscape. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I get asked this a lot right now, actually. The sort of, why don't I know what day of the week it is? Or, <laughs> you know, what, what is time? Sort of, it really <laughs> changes what time feels like. And, I mean, there's lots of fascinating research on how we understand and remember time. And we're really bad at estimating how long things take, for example. It's awful at it. Um, but more importantly for memory of um, and parsing memory, what we're missing right now are called landmark events. And mm. so what you're saying is exactly right, is that in March, because there was a lot of really big information coming out in a short period of time, our way of life was changing quite rapidly. 
So in March, what we had is we had a consistent stream of really big, important events happening that we could also sort of define time as before and after, which is what we, what memory scientists call these landmark events, which is something big that you orient the rest of your memories around. Okay. And so things actually, they can be negative or positive. So they can be things like when you got married, or they can be things like 9-11, uh, or whatever else is important in your life that was sort of a big deal. It could also be things like holidays, but it's sort of, it happened before the holiday or it happened after the holiday. Mm. So in this case, it happened before lockdown or after lockdown. Mm. Mm. And before lockdown, before there was a, yeah, and there was a lot of stuff happening really quickly. And so we had a lot of these landmark events and those have all but disappeared. And so what you now need to do is you need to basically create them. And so where before you could have, you know, gone out on the weekends and gone to concerts and those would have been small landmarks, you now need to create something that's unusual or exceptional in your life to have something that sticks out in your memory that you can again say things were before or after. Like what? That should help with time feeling. Like, like, like what, Julia Shaw? What should I be doing? So I actually have um, sort of an event bingo up on the fridge of things that I want to do. And they're all <laughs> things that I look forward to as the idea. And um, some of them are art related things. Some of them are like watching online theater performances. So things that, I, you know, that break up my routine still. So it's a theater. I, we turn off all the lights. We make sure that it's, you know, as close to a theater experience as possible. And uh, one of my favorites right now is, a round the world political tour where we're cooking the food of a country we don't know enough about, watching a documentary about it, listening to podcasts about it, and basically immersing ourselves on Thursday, it's Antarctica, um, <laughs> immersing yourself in the politics and understanding more about that particular country, which feels a bit like you're sort of traveling from your living room, but I think actually is helping with, Whoa. you know, that's a, a unique <laughs> experience for a day that you don't normally have, and that can help you make make it feel like time's not passing quite as quickly. Uh, what are you cooking from Antarctica? Antarctica? So Arctic Explorer food. So we had Angola and Algeria. You might be able to tell that we're going alphabetically. Um, <laughs> so we learned about Angola and Algeria, and now we're learning about Antarctica, and then making um, these biscuits that Arctic explorers make that are really high-calorie biscuits. And the idea uh, is to just see what it's like to make that and to eat that. That will not be all of our dinner. Um, we'll be having some fish with that because that's the um, other thing people there eat. Um, but yeah, just trying to There is nerd something. and there is power nerd. There is like uh, ultra, <laughs> like this is out, this is whoa. I'm, like, I'm really impressed that I'm, I'm, but I'm also shamed by it. So that's good too. Like, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm beating, I, I, uh, I beat Doom Eternal on, on the hardest setting. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, so for one, obviously this is, this will, only be it can only be a personal thing of what you know is interesting and important for you but the other thing is the more effort you put into this the more it's going to be a landmark event ah. i mean that is exactly sort of what defines these things is it's not just something you did do on a thursday because you didn't get to go out with your friends you know it's it's something that you put effort into that you booked tickets for maybe that you booked flights for that you you know made a schedule for those are the things we remember better and so okay. try to replicate that at home i am learning french uh, I, okay I'm, I'm doing that so uh and i have a I have some old, some old, old projects that I could get into. Okay. So learning French is not going to work. <laughs> great, great way to pass the time. Uh, would still encourage you to do it, but it is exactly the opposite of what you need to parse time, because it's a because the same thing as what's happening with Corona is it's one long uh, thing, okay, okay, okay. and so that you don't have the highlights, you don't have the piece. Well, I did get the um, 
the DeLorean from Back to the Future as a gift, uh, but you have to build it like from ah. bit by bit from so almost like almost scratch. So I've had that in a box for a while. So I might do that. That's a good one. Uh, a good one. <laughs> let me ask you. Uh, the the thing we ostensibly met to talk about, which is the most recent study that you just got published in the middle of all this so that you can be hated on by academics who are like, how dare you? This study is sort of a, a spinoff of the other study. It, it's an extension of it. And I guess I don't really need to uh, – if I say anything else, I'll be stepping all over it. So what what is this new study that you that just was published, and how does it relate to the one we talked about earlier? So the study I just published um, came out – it was actually accepted a few months ago. Um, as this classic in academic research, things take yeah. sort of have a bit of a tail and take take some time. Uh, but the study itself, it was two studies on false memories, and it was showing the videos of my first false memory study of these false memories of crime and other emotional events. Okay, so to the people, new participants, the people who you uh, and by the way, I meant I meant to <laughs> I meant to use your words because this I love that you said that <laughs> you wrote in the book. I could feel you being very excited about this. You implanted the memories, and then you were able to harvest the full-blown memories. <laughs> I harvested the full-blown memories from my participants. <laughs> like it, uh, the you. So you have these harvested memories, but you didn't just. Um, you, for some of these people, you re- you recorded them telling you this false memory. They were telling it to you like a story that happened in their life, even though it didn't actually happen, and they believed that it had happened. And so you took those videos, and now you have another study using those videos. And I'll just let you go from there. Correct. Uh, actually, for all of them, I made videos. That's oh, how okay. I, because I had to then code them and transcribe them and all these okay, things. Okay. Um, so, but of those videos, I picked eight sets. So eight different people, each recalling a true memory and a false memory. And so I showed these videos. It's the same person. So you as the participant would see bo- the same person twice. We're calling two different events. And your job as a participant would be to s- tell me, to indicate whether this happened or not. Now, I didn't say, is this a false memory or not? Because that's not actually the question that happens in reality, typically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get asked that question as an expert, but normal people just think, did this happen or not? And so that's exactly the question I asked. And I'm sure some people took that to think that maybe they were looking for deception. And that's fine, because that's exactly what they might be doing in the real world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. others might have immediately jumped to a false memory. But what I found is that across two different studies, so one done in the, with participants in Canada and one with participants in the United Kingdom, I found that both studies, with over 200 participants in total, um, people couldn't tell the difference between the same person telling this false memory that I'd implanted or talking about a true emotional memory and they, they couldn't spot. There were no reliable cues that people were relying on. There was They were at chance consistently in different ways in which I did it. I even gave it away at the end. So technically the first time round, you could say, you know, both are true or both are false or one's true and one's false. But at the end, I asked, I specifically said, one of these didn't happen. Which one was it? Hmm. And like, your chances are pretty good. <laughs> so there's any difference between them, this is when you should pick it up. And even there, they were still really bad. And so it's, wow. um, it just further reinforces this idea that false memories seem to feel real to individuals and they look real to other people. Great work. That's awesome. That's amazing. And, uh, and it's just this, this exact kind of like psychological research that they just cranks my tractor. I love it. But the, the like cranks your tractor? <laughs> the cranks my tractor. <laughs> <laughs> is that a saying? It, it is. It is in my world, uh, and you can. Did you, you grow can up on a farm. 
I grew up, I, I spent my summers on a farm, so. Uh, or I don't know anything anymore. I don't even know if I was on, those, on the farm in the summers at this point. It makes for a nice personal narrative uh, that defines me as a person to myself and others. I think about the fact that uh, these memories could, can be fictions and pretty dense ones, so much so that I'm talking about committing a crime or whatever that never happened. Uh, so these memories can be fictions, and then other people can't tell whether or not they're fictions. And so this just simply becomes the story of who we are to ourselves and others. Like the, it's, uh, you know, the, one of these turtles all the way down kind of things where I get the sense that we are moving through a mythological landscape and it's okay. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not even that it's a good thing. It's that it just is. I mean, this is like with science in general, it's mm. not like what we find isn't necessarily good or bad. It just is. Mm. And so I think that's true with memories as well, is that this is how it works and that is, it's what's important. And in terms of understanding it, I think it can be really good for empathy to also understand why you might have, for example, a different story about an important event than somebody else. So let's say someone you love has a completely different version mm. of something that you experienced with them. Now, one thing you can do is accuse them of lying, which probably isn't very good for the relationship. Another thing you can do is say that they, you know, got it wrong and that they're misremembering. And I think that in some ways is A, quite likely to be right, and B, is much kinder <laughs> as an assumption. Um, and I think that that's also true for, for criminal justice proceedings, is that it's, you know, going in with the assumption that maybe they're not intentionally lying, maybe they're misremembering. Um, is is a good thing. It also brings up, so when I first published The Memory Illusion, I had someone, I had a bunch of people write to me and from really uh, unusual places, including from war-torn places, like people in military situations writing about stuff. And one person who was doing aid work and in Africa, and he wrote me and sent a picture of himself with this group sitting under a tree. And he said that what happens in this village that he was in is that the elders get together and they literally sit under this tree and they decide, they agree on what happened. And so their reality and memory isn't seen as this like snapshot of reality. It's seen as something that you socially agree on, which wow. is something that we're all doing all the time. Yeah. But in some cultures that's like accepted except understood accepted and then incorporated as a value that's and really incorporated cool. and you sit under the tree and you decide what do we agree on and the elders you know have more weight than you do and that's just the way it is I and like that's that. how you as a group you know what's i can't believe i didn't mention this to you earlier and this is a good place to kind of bring it in for a landing blade runner 2049 is based uh the cent the like the central motif of it is Nabokov's the the pale fire thing, which is a story about someone who misheard uh, something and then incorporated that as part of their personal narrative. The whole movie is about having a false memory. I just realized this. Yeah. Uh, uh, the whole cells intertwined part of the thing comes from that story. And it's, you see the book a couple times. How did I forget this? Oh my God. Like that's the whole point of it. And you, you mentioned in your book a person, it's one of your narratives in the book, um, it was an art student who, they were like in their fourth year of art school and they had devoted themselves to, to the craft and to learning it and to becoming an, a real artist because they remembered seeing the statue of David in person and how much it had moved them. Uh, and if you could finish that story, what, 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 what did they discover? Did I write about that? <laughs> you did write about that. Yes, <laughs> What good. did I write? Ah, so Tell me I what I wrote. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> it could be anything, right? 
And the next thing you said was how you were bitten by a snake as a kid. Um, <laughs> keep, keep trying. You can, keep trying. <laughs> the, um, this art student found out from their family later on, they saw, they revisited the statue and they, and they were I like, do remember oh, this. Okay, this ahead. was from the false memory project. Um, this was, yes. So it was, uh, someone in a, yeah, who was curating an exhibition about false memories and they were asking people to send them false memories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And one of them was that they'd gone back. Another one was about a church that they seemed to re- said that they remembered as a baby. And basically it was just this whole, set of false memories yeah, yeah. of all different kinds of people. Um, but yeah, sorry, go on. The, I've got it here. I promise. I'll, I'll correct this if I'm wrong. But if I remember correctly, the, there was an art student who thought they had seen the, who, who had based their whole like personhood and career on ha- having been inspired by that. And then later on, they found out they never even actually had done it. They had never seen the statue in person and it was all a false memory. And to come back to Blade Runner, that's the one of the central. That's not only the the, the book that it's that they used as the inspiration is about how that happened to someone, and uh, they just misheard a poem and they based their whole life off the misheard poem. But then also the main character in that is basing their entire hero's journey on a false premise and a false memory at the same time that was implanted on purpose. And then, but this the message in all of that is also the the a major message from your work if i'm hearing you correctly which is like yeah okay fine like if it gives you know it, that's not uh it just is how it is and it's not necessarily bad even though it feels kind of icky i guess in some way because it makes you feel like you're lying or you're a liar or it's far the word fiction feels bad but we are participating in this this is an interaction at the cognitive level i mean this is an interaction with reality itself in which we're all playing the game together and I can feel like something is hovering around me, which is saying there is a leap to be made where this is intensely meaningful and inspirational in some way. I need you to cross the gap for me. Say something to finish us out that will make me feel really good about all this. So you should be going through a bit of an existential crisis, going, what is real? Can I trust any of my memories? And that's a healthy place to start. You need to get through the sort of troubled bit in order to come out the other side, I think. And then once you get through the existential crisis and you question all memories, including important ones, uh, you come out the other side and hopefully you end where I am, which is that you realize that um, in some ways this is incredibly liberating. And what it also means is that you're memory you you are the curator of your memories and so you are able to also craft and select how you remember things as well and so in some ways if you if you want to push all the way to the extreme you could give yourself positive false memories but more importantly what you can do is you can you have some element of control over how you remember your your life story and which pieces you sort of put together in what way and so i think that that can help you again give you some agency sort of to to feel like you're in control of your memories they're not in control of you Mm. because you are and you should accept that and internalize that and play with it and realize this is your reality you're crafting and you can cognitively restructure basically anything and for people who've done therapy this is basically what you're doing in therapy is you're restructuring how you think about things and the same is true for your memories and so that i think is incredibly empowering Uh, plus my assumption is that people who have more false memories and who are more flexible are probably more intelligent, who are generally more interesting, more creative, and uh, probably have a better time of it. Thank you for 
doing this in this strange time and building a uh, a blanket fort to to make you sound good, but also in a fort like that, uh, the chances of you being bit by a snake are very slim. So I'm sure that <laughs> makes you feel good because I know you have that fear from your childhood. It's um, amazing that uh, yeah, the snake got in anyway, right? <laughs> but so thank you so much. And uh, to as you exit, if you could just um, what are your socials and what are you working on? Anything you want to promote? So I've got a book called uh, The Memory Illusion, which is all about false memories and the science of misremembering and also talks about some positives and things like social media and how you are the, narr- the sort of curator of your online persona as well. Mm. We need to be careful with that. because I think that's a really profound question that a lot of us are grappling with is you know, how does social media influence my identity and my memory? And um, tying in with that, talking about social media, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. Both are at Dr. Julia Shaw. And if you want to read my research, it's all up for free, open source on drjuliashaw.com. Fantastic. And you also have a book, uh, uh, Evil or Making Evil, and uh, which you can find on your website. And you have another book coming up soon about sexuality. And you're just and you're doing something for the BBC. You're gen- you're generally just doing stuff. So uh, I'm doing stuff. So just follow me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for all of this and uh, good luck in the future. And I hope we do it. I'll interview you again when you make your next big project. So thanks a bunch. Fantastic. Thank you. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. You can keep up with me on Twitter at David McRaney. You can keep up with the podcast at Not Smart Blog. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash youarenotsosmart. Support this one-person operation by heading to Patreon and pitching in at any amount. And if you do that, you'll get the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get shirts and signed books and posters and all sorts of stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the music bed in this episode was by Twin Musicom. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.